Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Mint Mobile. The best part of spring cleaning is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash freak. That's mintmobile.com slash freak. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash freak. Upfront payment of $45 required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower, above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hey there, podcast listeners. We're working on an episode about the economics of household innovation. That is, when people invent things for their own use without the explicit goal of commercialization. Are you that person who tinkers in their workshop or... Maybe you've hacked together some software for your own specific needs. If you've ever invented anything worth telling us about, well, we'd like you to tell us about it. We'd like to hear about the invention itself, your motivation, also how much time and money you put into it. Make a brief audio recording. Just use whatever voice memo app is on your phone and email the file to us at radio at Freakonomics.com with the subject line invention. Please be sure to tell us your name, what you do, and where you're from. Thanks. Also, if you'd like to see Freakonomics Radio live, tickets are on sale now for upcoming shows in Los Angeles and Philadelphia. Tickets and info at Freakonomics.com slash live. Hope to see you there. You recently called higher education a racket. You're selling a product that everyone is convinced is essential. It's got uncertain ROI quality that's difficult to measure, and you can raise prices without losing customers. That doesn't sound like something we're used to hearing from a college president. I was being uh, a little facetious, of course, but uh, I was making the point that at least until recently, higher ed has been in a very fortunate place where nothing much could go wrong. People did feel they had to have what it was selling and that they could charge almost anything they felt like. People had no way to know if they were getting a good deal or not, whether the quality was up to the price. And that's changing now and, and should. It's changing in part because of this man. I'm Mitch Daniels. I'm currently the president of Purdue University. Purdue is a large, well-regarded state university established in 1869 in West Lafayette, Indiana. There are more than 32,000 undergraduates and nearly 10,000 grad students. It's best known for its business and engineering programs. It's produced more astronauts than any other non-military institution. Mitch Daniels spent most of his career not in academia, but rather in business. He worked for the pharmaceutical firm Eli Lilly and primarily in politics. He worked in two White Houses. A former advisor to President Reagan and George W. Bush's director of the Office of Management and Budget. He became a popular two-term governor. He was elected governor of Indiana in 2004 and turned around a struggling economy. The state was broke when we got here, and we fixed that in a great big way. Daniels was such an economic pragmatist. An area Indiana has fared better than most states is by reigning in the state budget. That some people thought he might make it to the White House. Now the latest on the 2012 race and another potential candidate for president, Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels. But instead of that presidency, he's six years into this one at Purdue. And he's threatening to blow up the economic orthodoxies of college education. The um, all-in cost of attending our school in 2021 will be less than it was in 2012. 
Not everyone loves his cost-cutting. Callers and cheers erupted when several staff and faculty members voiced their concerns about changes to Purdue's paid time off policy. It's sometimes depressing to work at because it feels like it is bad thing after bad thing after cut after cut. But Mitch Daniels believes he knows what college should be and what it shouldn't be. Water features and climbing walls and concierge services. Today on Freakonomics Radio, there's a college tuition debt crisis in America, and it's even worse than you think. So what's being done to fix it? From Stitcher and Dubner Productions, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. If you look at higher education as an industry, which you should because essentially it is, then you'd have to acknowledge that this industry has been booming. Between 2000 and 2010, undergraduate enrollment at U.S. colleges increased by 37%. As demand rose, so did the price. From 2000 to 2016, the average annual cost of college more than doubled, from around $15,000 a year to nearly $32,000. Over the past 20 years, only two other goods or services have risen as much as college. One is hospital services, The other is college textbooks. Since 1985, college costs have risen four times faster than the consumer price index. Why? There are a number of reasons. One has to do with what economists call Baumel's cost disease. That's what happens when salaries rise, in this case the salaries of college administrators and faculty and staff, without a commensurate rise in productivity. You also see this in the performing arts and in hospital services, by the way. Even though there's a lot of technology in hospitals and in colleges, they still require a lot of real people spending a lot of real hours to get the work done. It's not like manufacturing, where automation creates efficiencies. It's not like software, where the millionth copy costs way less to make than the first one did. Another reason the price of college has risen so much? Because college has become even more valuable. People with a college education have always earned more than those without. But if you look at the data from 1970, and then from 2000, and then from 2015, the earnings gap between workers with and without a college degree has become an earnings chasm. And so, as Mitch Daniels said... People did feel they had to have what it was selling, and they could charge almost anything they felt like. Did the quality of the product rise along with the price? The absence of any real objective way to measure what students are learning. Are they growing intellectually? In fact, we have some evidence that says they're not growing very much. But in the absence of any proof of quality, people have come to associate sticker price with quality. If it costs more, it must be better. It also helped that the federal government and others were more than happy to lend money for college. We know empirically, it's no longer somebody's theory, that flooding the marketplace with third-party subsidies, grants and loans and so forth, enabled higher ed to keep raising its prices. The New York Fed is the most recent of many to identify this phenomenon and Basically, they find that for every dollar of new public subsidy, colleges have raised their price between 60 and 70 cents. So as demand for college was rising and costs were rising and loans were rising, you know what else has been rising, don't you? Student debt. It is hard to overstate the magnitude and the severity of the college debt load in the U.S. Roughly 45 million people have student loan debt totaling $1.5 trillion. Of those who graduate from a public four-year university, nearly 60% have debt, with an average of more than $27,000. And those are the graduates. Roughly 40% of students at those schools don't graduate within six years. And student debt, it doesn't matter whether the student gets a job, gets a good job, succeeds or doesn't. 
the uh, bill is there and it's going to compound. The interest is going to grow over time. There's no getting out of it even in bankruptcy. And uh, you can see that the consequences in individual lives. Now you can see the big consequences for us all um, because young people are postponing uh, uh, buying houses are postponing forming families, postponing having children. They're starting fewer businesses than they used to. Bad deal all around. There's a lot of data to back up what Daniels is claiming here, that tuition debt is a huge drag on the economy overall. The Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell told the Senate Banking Committee last year that student loan debt, quote, absolutely could hold back growth. Some politicians are proposing a fairly radical solution. Elizabeth Warren, for instance, the Democratic senator from Massachusetts who's running for president. That's why I'm calling for universal free college and the cancellation of student loan debt of up to $50,000 for 42 million Americans. Should college be universally free? Some countries do provide that. Should all college debt be forgiven? Warren's plan calls for taxing the ultra-wealthy to come up with the money. But let's assume that near term, at least, college won't become universally free and college debt won't be universally forgiven. In the meantime, what can or should be done to make college more affordable? There have been 36 consecutive years of increases here, as at virtually every other school, and some of those were not small. Mitch Daniels became president of Purdue in 2013. One of the first things he proposed was a tuition freeze. At the outset, all I imagined we might do is take a one-year time out. How was that suggestion received? Daniels' previous job, remember, was governor of Indiana. I remember saying, I think probably too sarcastically to folks here, uh, you know, I just landed here on, on Mars. But back on Earth, they're becoming really concerned about the high price of what we're doing here. And when I suggested maybe just a one-year pause, there were those among the enrollment professionals here who very genuinely said, oh my gosh, if, if we stand still while everyone else goes up again, people will think we don't have confidence in the quality of our product. And I said, I just don't think that's how the earthlings are, are looking at all this. So we, we did it. And they did it beyond that one year. Tuition at Purdue has been frozen at least through the 2021 school year. The cost of room and board was also cut by 5%. And so the um, all-in cost in nominal dollars of attending our school in 2021 will be less than it was in 2012. And uh, that's not the economic model that most schools have pursued, but it's been working out well for us, and we'll continue uh, operating on that philosophy uh, the best we can. How has Purdue managed to cut its price? Not by drawing down a lot more government money. Our support from the state has been uh, more or less flat. No, the Daniel solution lay primarily in cost-cutting, the same kind of cost-cutting he practiced as governor of Indiana. On his first day as governor in 2005, Daniels established an Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, the same agency he'd run for the federal government. Indiana, at the time, had an $800 million budget deficit. Daniels preached efficiency and reform at every turn. He cut the state workforce and consolidated agencies. He created public-private partnerships to run highways and prisons. He repealed collective bargaining, decertified the public employee unions, and made Indiana a right-to-work state. In other words, textbook fiscal conservative moves. On balance, Daniels was incredibly popular. He even won awards for his wildlife conservation efforts. And John Kasich called him the Michael Jordan of governors. Now he's being called by The Wall Street Journal, America's most innovative university president for making similar moves at Purdue. He's trimmed the budget of some big capital projects and killed off other projects entirely. He privatized the university's bus service. He replaced cafeteria employees with student workers. He sent out furniture for repair rather than buying new furniture. Some Purdue faculty and staff have complained about the cost-cutting. They say their compensation and benefits are being curtailed. They say departments increasingly compete against one another for resources. They say Daniels' pursuit of corporate partnerships, like a textbook deal with Amazon, is not good for the university. 
Also controversial was Purdue's recent acquisition of the online for-profit Kaplan University, now called Purdue University Global, which delivered 30,000 new paying customers. Some Purdue professors worried this would tarnish their brand and spread the university too thin. Mitch Daniels argues that his combination of cost-cutting and a growth mindset is working out just fine. We have grown our faculty actually faster than the student body. And we have one of the best ratios in America of faculty to students. What about median wage of faculty, though, along with that growth? Yeah, they're very competitive. In fact, across the spectrum of, of uh, professors, uh, assistant, associate, and full, 7, 9, and 13 percent above the nearest Big Ten school. And um, we have not shifted to less expensive or, or contingent or temporary faculty. We have the highest percentage of our faculty who are so-called tenure-track among American research universities. Your own compensation at Purdue includes performance goals, and last year you hit all the goals, so congratulations, um, and therefore received a bonus of, I'm reading, $210,000 on top of a base salary of four hundred thirty k for a total of about six hundred forty k which is a nice salary, hardly extravagant by college president standards, we should say. Meanwhile, the head football coach at Purdue earned around $3.8 million last year, and his team won only six games against seven losses. So to me, it sounds like you had a better year than the football coach did, to say nothing of the fact that he's only running a football team and you run the entire university. How do you feel about that construct? I'm fine. I'm remembering when they asked Babe Ruth, didn't he think it was scandalous? He was paid two or three times the president of the United States. He said, well, I had a better year. No, it's the world we're in. You know, life's been kind. I'm, my family's provided for. I didn't come here for the money. I, without putting a fine point on it, if money were my object, I had other options. Under Daniels, Purdue's alumni donations, student retention rates, and graduation rates are all way up. And so are applications. They've risen from 31,000 a year to 53,000 during his tenure. Interestingly, This has happened during a recent decline in college enrollment in the U.S. Earlier, I told you that college enrollment rose 37% between 2000 and 2010. But from 2010 to 2016, it's down 7%. How should this decline be interpreted? You might say that we simply hit peak college a few years ago. The boom came up against its ceiling. Or... You might say the price of college has simply become prohibitive for too many people, or that would-be students and their parents are scared off by the horror stories about lifelong college debt. But you should also consider this fact. College enrollment tends to be correlated with the employment rate. When there are a lot of jobs available, some people skip college to take those jobs. And the employment scenario has improved in recent years, So that could also help explain the overall drop in demand for college. This drop in demand is already affecting the supply side. College closures, while still rare, have been rising. Some larger university systems, like the University of Wisconsin, are consolidating their campuses. For-profit colleges are particularly prone to suffer from less demand, and their numbers have decreased over the past several years. But a prestigious private college or a big public research university like Purdue, they are still seeing historically high demand. Some students and their parents are so eager to get into college that they'll pay bribes in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and pretend they play water polo. So what does all this mean for the future of college tuition and for long-term debt? More and more elite schools with huge endowments are offering free tuition for anyone whose family can't afford it. But that covers a relatively tiny portion of the college population. So yes, Purdue makes news by freezing its tuition for several years, but it still charges Indiana residents around $20,000 a year for tuition plus room and board. Non-residents pay nearly $39,000, and international students pay over $41,000. And so, coming up after the break, Mitch Daniels and Purdue are trying something much more radical than a tuition freeze. So an income share agreement, I first saw it in an essay by Milton Friedman from 50, 60 years ago, 
Purdue isn't the only school trying an income share agreement. Once they find a job that is paying them a nice salary, it is 17% of your income for three and a half years. Also, lessons from the Australian version. That's coming up right after this. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Canva. Supercharge your work with AI-powered Magic Write in Canva Docs. You can just describe what you want to say in a few words, and Magic Write will generate a draft in seconds. You can use it for sales proposals, marketing plans, job descriptions, meeting agendas, you name it. Tweak your draft, and you're done. It is a serious time saver and the perfect way to beat the blank page. Generate your draft with Canva Docs at canva.com designed for work. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by IKEA. Can you believe how expensive life is these days? Well, with IKEA, you can furnish your space beautifully and affordably. When you shop at IKEA, every dollar gives more, more quality, more sustainability, more inspiration. When these things come together, you can make the most of every day. Plus, Filling your bag can now be more affordable than ever because IKEA has hundreds of new lower prices on some of their most popular items. And don't worry, IKEA cuts costs without compromising quality. IKEA is making it more affordable than ever to furnish your entire home with home solutions you will love. Shop hundreds of new lower prices today at ikea-usa.com. That's ikea-usa.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Southern Company. As a national leader in carbon-free nuclear energy, Southern Company has a vision of a resilient energy future, and every day they're putting it in motion. That means balancing the responsibility and reliability of their existing infrastructure while also investing in carbon-free nuclear energy along with wind and solar power as an essential component of preserving our environment. With energy demand on the rise, their balanced approach to a net-zero future centers around creating jobs, helping communities thrive and meeting demand for carbon-free energy in a way that's affordable, reliable, and safe for all. Because a stronger and more equitable tomorrow is only possible through investments in our communities today. Learn more at southerncompany.com. Mitch Daniels grew up mostly in Indianapolis. He studied public policy and law at Princeton and Georgetown, respectively, and went on to work in the federal government under Presidents Reagan and Bush the Younger. He was also a pharmaceutical executive and was CEO of the Hudson Institute, a conservative think tank. Since 2013, Daniels has been the president of Purdue University, where he froze the price of tuition, cut the cost of room and board. That alone is enough to make him an outlier in the college pricing market. But there's more. One program uh, at Purdue that you've instituted that I'm uh, really interested in, I think everybody would be interested in, is uh, what's called Backup Boiler. The uh, Purdue Boilermakers is the mascot. It's an income share agreement in which, if I understand correctly, students can defer some or all, I'm not sure, tuition payment in favor of repaying Purdue a share of their later income. You have the essence, right? It's not a deferral of tuition, and Purdue gets paid, but instead of uh, the, the check coming from the federal government in a loan, it comes from an investment fund. We participated, but so did other foundations and now in some uh, private investors. And think of it as equity, not debt. So the student doesn't borrow the money. The risk shifts from the student to the investor. If things don't work out well, it's the investor or the investment fund that's on the hook quite the opposite of student debt. So an income share agreement, I first saw it in an essay by Milton Friedman from 50, 60 years ago. It's not a complete replacement, but it's a better option, certainly than the private loans that many students have to take on. There's a lid on how much uh, of the heavily federally subsidized loans a, a student can take. And when they need more, they sometimes wind up with these uh, pretty expensive debt instruments. So, you know, I talk about this as, you know, uh, working your way through college after college. And um, if it doesn't work out, 
again, you're not on the hook. Just so the audience will understand, a typical uh, one, and it would vary with what the students studied, but a chemical engineer uh, from Purdue University would pay about 2.5% of income for maybe six or seven years. Somebody who studied, uh, let's say, psychology, it might be 4 or 5% of income, whatever that income is. And just to be clear, that's because a psychologist is making a lot less than a chemical engineer, correct? Likely to make less. Now, let me ask you this from the investor's perspective. Let's say I'm invested in the fund that is funding this back of boiler program. To what degree can I handpick the students that I'm investing in? Can I buy a tranche of just the chemical engineering students, or do I have to have the psychology and history students in there, too? You can't cherry-pick the way we're doing it. You know, if this thing becomes a broad national movement, there could be all kinds of ways others might approach it. We're in our third year now, uh, getting close to 1,000 students total, and uh, beginning to accumulate some experience. But from the beginning, almost every discipline we teach here, all the way across the liberal arts, the health sciences, as well as our biggest fields, which are engineering and computer science and uh, the so-called STEM disciplines, still early days, but the repayment uh, history is is very good for all of them. And, um, uh, you know, we have consumer protections. Some of our graduates are going to hit the jackpot early. They're going to do so well. It happens every year. They're going to get promoted two or three times. There's a top cap uh, beyond which uh, you're not required to. It's two and a half times the uh, initial outlay. Is that right? Two and a half times what was invested. You know, sometimes uh, people who either haven't understood or don't want to understand this concept have thrown around terms like indentured servitude, which makes me laugh because it's the opposite of that. I mean, if you want indentured servitude, go get a government loan. You can't escape it. In this case, what you can see is an affordable percentage, low percentage of whatever your income is, and uh, that's it. You know, the the real thing that we hope to happen here is that uh, this movement will spread, and a lot of other schools start to get interested in it because they see it'd be better for their students. There are indeed a lot of other schools, and startups, by the way, looking into income share agreements, or ISAs, as a way to rewrite the college tuition equation. One of the beauties of an ISA is that you're aligning interest with a student. Christine Bredemeyer is head of admissions and enrollment at the Holberton School. That's a for-profit software engineering college that opened in 2016 in San Francisco. It's now got a few other campuses. The school is free until and only if the students find a job that's over 40K. And once they do find a job that is paying them a nice salary, typically our students are are earning over 100K as their first full-time software engineering position. It is 17% of your income for three and a half years. How does Holberton cover the costs of running a school if they're not taking in tuition? Partly through private investors like any startup, but also through $2 million in investments drawn from Edly, an online marketplace for income share agreements. So I think the easiest way to think about Edley is it's kind of like the NASDAQ, although you're not investing in companies or corporations, you're investing in human potential. Investors only see a return on their money when a student is successful, and the same goes for us. So everyone is playing the same game. We want our students to actually find successful jobs. Holberton's founders were also interested in diversifying the tech world. In that regard, offering free tuition is useful. So it's giving a lot more people access to quality education. We have over 60% people of color, 30% plus uh, women. We have a lot of college dropouts. We have teachers and artists, a lot of musicians. Over 40% of our students are first-generation post-secondary students. And 30% of our students, um, English is not the main language spoken at home. Holberton says that all of their first 105 graduates are employed and that all of them are paying their Holberton dues as scheduled. If our students are not getting jobs, then we don't get paid and we close as a school. And I think colleges, that's what they kind of set out to be originally, was to help get students into careers. Another career-building school with free tuition is Lambda, an online learning startup backed by Silicon Valley's Y Combinator, among others. Lambda offers programs in fields like data science and UX design at no charge with Lambda getting 17% of a graduate's salary for two years, as long as they get a job paying more than $50,000, with payments capped at $30,000. So, yes, there seems to be momentum for the private for-profit model of an income-sharing agreement, but what about the traditional nonprofit college model? 
And what kind of role can or should government play? The Obama administration pushed to make federal loans cheaper and put an interest rate cap on loan payments. But other countries have gone much, much, much further. Australia, for instance, has for decades offered free tuition, letting graduates pay back the government once they're employed, with the payments collected through the federal tax system. That is a very tidy system, especially if most of the universities are state-run, as they are in Australia. There was, however, one big loophole. What if an Australian graduates from college and then moves abroad to work? Aren't they stealing a free education from everyone else who stays behind and pays back their tuition? Australia only managed to close this loophole in 2016 after more than 25 years of expatriate Aussies not paying their government. I wondered about a similar loophole when we had Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo on our show last year. She had just made community college in Rhode Island tuition-free. That led me to ask her this. What kind of residency requirement is there afterwards? If I get a free community college degree from you and then I move immediately to Massachusetts or California, do I have to pay you back? We ask them to make a pledge that they'll stick around for a couple years. So, yes, the deal is you have to go full time because we want people to graduate. You have to keep up a minimum grade point average. Can't get into trouble. Got to be in academic good standing. And we want you to live in Rhode Island for at least two years after you graduate. Raimondo may want them to live there so that Rhode Island recaptures the tuition funding through state income taxes. But Rhode Island currently imposes no penalty if a student gets a free tuition and moves away. It's the Australia loophole. In New York State, meanwhile, Governor Andrew Cuomo is not taking any chances. His plan to offer free college to qualifying families requires graduates to stay in New York for at least as many years as they received free tuition. Otherwise, their tuition bill will be converted into a no-interest loan that would have to be repaid. You can see why this sort of plan, free college education with repayment through the tax system, why it'd be easier at the federal level with the IRS doing the collecting. In fact, a friend of mine is currently trying to design such a system, and he's gathering allies from the education and financial and political communities. So if you are a high-ranking elected official, Democrat or Republican, and you want to hear more from my friend and his allies, drop me an email, radio at Freakonomics.com, and I'll hook you up. My friend, like many others who are trying to think creatively about the college tuition debt problem, recognizes that the current system is unsustainable and that it could be really damaging to our long-term economy and to our society. But a smart solution will require a lot more political will than would seem to be available at the moment, especially at the federal level. I wondered about this as I was speaking with Mitch Daniels, because he's a pretty willful person, and he had a successful career in politics. So I was curious to ask him about that, too. So as I read what you've written over the years and what's been written about you, it seems that the central theme of your political philosophy is fiscal responsibility. Would you essentially agree with that? To me, it's a prerequisite for everything else. It's an essential stewardship assignment. No matter what your philosophy of government, we can have and should have good, honest uh, differences about the size and scope, you know, how big the sphere of government should be. But... Um, Within that, there's two things we had to agree on. One is you got to pay your bills, not hand them on to your successors and to uh, and to the succeeding generations. And and secondly, uh, whatever government is doing, it ought to try to do it well, which is another badly neglected assignment. Well, let, let's talk about spending. So we know your position generally. Let me ask you about your term at the OMB under President Bush, because spending in that case. Increase. You left that job to run for governor of Indiana. When you left, here's what the Democratic spokesman for the House Appropriations Committee said, quote, by OMB's own estimates, Daniels, you, 
has presided over an era which has seen a projected $5.6 trillion surplus in 2001, the end of the Clinton era, turn into a $2.2 trillion projected deficit today. In short, Mitch Daniels is the clown that turned our fiscal house upside down. So that would not seem to to match at all the uh, the fellow known as the blade for, for his budget cutting instincts. How do you respond to that charge that you come in talking about being fiscally conservative and careful and leave with a, a, a greater deficit? Well, there may be one syllable of that statement that's true, but I couldn't find it. First of all, the projections were there, and the the error I made, but so did everybody else, including Alan Greenspan and everybody in Congress, was to imagine that the uh, uh, happy circumstance—I mean, the first year we were there, we paid off some debt. The happy confluence of a reasonably moderate Democratic president and a Republican House produced a better fiscal situation. There was a huge bubble, and the stock market uh, broke, and the federal government was enjoying a gusher of— temporary revenues from capital gains and the uh, income tax based on options and so forth. And um, those projections were never going to come true. And then history is clear on that. So uh, it took a little while for everybody to figure that out. But that that was a fictional surplus. Secondly, I never had a single conversation or d- debate with the House Appropriations Committee or the Congress, frankly, both parties, where they were for less spending than I was. Ever. There were uh, some circumstantial changes. There was that little thing called 9-11, followed by the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts. And um, that required some spending that everybody agreed on, uh, but, uh, but, you know, wasn't forecast before. You know, I went to the National Press Club not too long after that happened, and I talked about, you know, what Harry Truman did when uh, he decided we had to engage in the uh, Korean conflict. And what Franklin Roosevelt had suggested doing, namely, if you have to spend money on national security emergencies, you stop spending money elsewhere. Uh, Congress didn't buy it. Well, let me ask you this. Um, You uh, were in charge of of creating a forecast for the cost of a potential war in Iraq. And as I've read, you've put that number in the roughly $60 billion range. The ultimate cost was actually in the $800 billion range, just Iraq. I'm glad you brought it up because there's been some misunderstanding or, and occasionally some very big misrepresentation of that. I'll, I'll let you answer, and I want to get any corrections, but really the larger question I want to ask is this. It strikes me that a lot of U.S. policy, tax policy, spending policy, and so on, is a result of these sort of accidents of history. Wars often, whether preventable or not, I think back to World War II and how that changed for many, 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 many years, tax policy in the U.S. It also changed for many, many, many years, continuing to this day, the way our health insurance is set up, connected to employers, which was not the case in in most other countries, was not the case here, as I understand it, before World War II. So... I guess what I'm asking is, it's a little bit like, you know, the famous Mike Tyson quote, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And I'm curious to hear your assessment of how your plan stands up in a world where these things do happen and throw all the plans out the window. Well, that's a a great question. Let's go back to the front end, just get that taken care of. When the president made the decision to go to Iraq, um, this wasn't in anybody's budget. So there had to be what uh, is called a supplemental appropriation bill. Congress loves these, by the way, because they generally become an opportunity uh, to uh, serve as the Christmas tree. You can put other things on there. It was a supplemental appropriation for a specified period of time. The question was, how much will it cost to defeat the Iraqi army and to stay for six months? In the naivete of the planners, uh, the thought was that's all you'd have to be there. You'd win the war, stabilize the situation, turn it over to somebody, and leave. Now, OMB is not war planners. We didn't decide to go to war, and we didn't plan the war. Um, But someone having done that, our job was to produce the best estimate we could to answer that question. It turned out to be pretty darn accurate. In fact, I think it cost a little less than that. If someone had asked, what will it cost to beat the Iraqi army and stay for 10 or 15 years? Well, you'd have gotten a very different answer. I argued during the time at OMB that uh, natural disasters are going to happen. We have history. And uh, now Congress doesn't fund those. I said, why don't we every year fund 
uh, what looks to be a, an average amount of cost for taking care of floods and hurricanes and the sorts of things that happen. But nobody wanted to do that. It's a lot more fun to wait till it happens. Then you can have a supplemental bill and you can buy all kinds of other things you wanted to buy and couldn't get in the regular budget. Colleges and universities in the U.S. are famously liberal, at least in terms of um, political identification among faculty, let's say. So one study of more than 7,000 professors from 40 leading U.S. universities found a Democratic to Republican ratio of 11.5 to 1. In some disciplines, it's less. Economics is less. Law is less. But in others, it was much higher. In journalism, it's 20 to 1. In history, it's 33 and a half Democratic to 1 Republican. Obviously, you are a Republican. You are a university president. I realize that Purdue and Indiana are generally more conservative than a lot of other parts of the country. But still, I'm curious what you think this says about the state of universities generally and what can or should be done about it. Well, first of all, I'm not a Republican. I'm uh, really since the middle of 2012, on the day I accepted this job, I said I would uh, forswear any partisan activity uh, out of respect for the place, and I've I've maintained that. But, um, you know, the, those ratios, how did it happen? Well, there's probably always been a leftist tilt in the academy. I can remember a French intellectual, uh, this is 25 years ago now, saying, you know, Marxism is so discredited over there where they seen it close up. He said, when we need a Marxist, now we have to import one from an American university. So there's nothing new about that. I think it's a self-selection process. People try to probably pick people more like themselves. Meanwhile, I think a lot of folks deselect. Uh, they just say, I wouldn't be comfortable there. I'd be isolated or ostracized. And so you do that for two or three generations, you're probably going to get where we've gotten. But I think young people, by and large, they've got pretty good... Um, BS detectors, and I think they can, over time, figure out if, they, if they're being force-fed or are not offered a, a range of facts and opinions to consider. Uh, but here's the real problem, as a lot of recent books have pointed out. The advance of knowledge, forget politics and ideology for a minute, the advance of knowledge requires the collision of ideas. And that's what's beginning to trouble, I think, even people of more liberal or leftist persuasion is where, where you get this complete homogeneity, this just dreary conformity. And uh, then the uh, free inquiry stops being the driver of new discoveries and ideas. Well, let me ask you this. In your book, uh, Keeping the Republic, Saving America by Trusting Americans, you wrote the following. Large majorities of Americans are clueless about their own history in the history of past fallen empires, encouraged on every side to think of themselves as victims of an unfair system and their country's nothing special, they react to economic adversity not with a bootstraps resolve, but with self-pity and a search for villains. So let's assume none of us are fans of self-pity or even a search for villains. I'm curious the extent to which you think that a bootstraps resolve is really enough to succeed in the modern American economy? Because it strikes me that the political discontent of voters on the right and left argue against that. In other words, your assessment could read as though, well, people have just kind of gotten lazy, taken too much for granted. But the fact that that situation exists means the solution would not seem to just say to people, hey, change what you're doing. In other words, is a political solution of the sort that you propose really possible given our track record? Maybe not. Uh, first of all, that book was resolutely optimistic about the character and the readiness for self-government of the American people. I talked about the fact there are a lot of people peddling victimization and self-pity, and you say, let's assume nobody is a fan of that. Well, there are fans of that, and there are advocates for that, and they make careers of it. If you look back at the birth of this country, it was the birth of self-government. But the first requirement of self-government is to be able to govern oneself. That is, if you want to live in a country that is free, where people come together and decide about their common future, it presupposes that, that people have some measure of autonomy and are happy about that and, and want to live their own lives. I continue to believe that uh, there's still a, plenty enough of that in the American character that we can come together as we're going to need to at some point and address problems like our national debt 
and um, make some mature decisions that place tomorrow ahead of today. I guess when I hear you say that, I think that there will always be a certain segment of any population that's uh, willing and able to do that. But it seems as though every population is majority ruled by people when left to their nature, their instincts, or the incentives that are presented to them that absolutely will not engage in long-termism, including, I should say, roughly 534 or 5 people in D.C. So I'm curious whether that optimism that you expressed, do you still feel it having seen the the political climate of the last uh, seven or eight years? I confess, I'm a little shakier about it today. You know, we've been lucky enough, most of us, to live all our lives under conditions of freedom. But we, uh, I mentioned in the book, I tripped over the fact that on some of the original coinage of the American Republic, there was the Latin phrase, exito in dubio est. The outcome is still in doubt. At the very beginning, people said, boy, this experiment in governing ourselves is really unproven, and it might not last. Apparently, you thought medium hard, maybe really hard, about running for president of the United States in 2012 and perhaps again in 2016. And and you had quite a bit of support, including in the punditocracy. Of course, it's easy to support people who aren't running yet. That's free. Why didn't you run on either occasion? Well, 16 is easy to answer. I, as I tell people here at Purdue, I held out and got a better job. And you could still get called president, too. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'll say, look, at this point in life, I'm not taking the demotion. But... Uh, <laughs> 2011 was different. I didn't take it seriously for a long time. A a stunning array and number of people said they thought it was a good idea. So I I did take a a little while and think hard about it. But, you know, at at the end of the day, um, my family was, uh, which has uh, uh, five women in it, and when they are unanimous on something, they are a formidable group. They were very uncomfortable with it. They had seen public life, not just at the state, but at the national level. They knew what it was about. They had young families forming, and they just didn't feel that they wanted to spend the next several years in that. One of my friends said, you know, you got a fatal problem in this whole presidential thing. I said, well, probably a lot of them. Which one are you talking about? And he said, "Uh, you can live without it. And, you know, what? one almost has to be fully possessed with the idea. And um, as I told people at the time, I don't ever remember, you know, looking in the shaving mirror and seeing a president of the United States staring back. But uh, the other thing, I mean, uh, a a father of four daughters uh, has no good answer to the statement, Daddy, please don't. Let me just ask you finally, The Trump presidency has been unusual on a lot of dimensions. Knowing what I've gleaned about you, I'm guessing that a lot of his policy directives and instincts are in line with what you like. Knowing what I know about you also, however, I'm guessing that a lot of the conduct uh, is not to your liking. So I'm curious uh, whether that reading is uh, uh, accurate or rather I should probably just shut up and, and let you tell me a little bit about what you think of the president and the presidency thus far. I'm the one that should shut up about you've already gotten me to say more about things political than I than I generally do or, or wish to. Again, uh, this is a public university, and I uh, I have taken very seriously the um, vow, like I always say, vow of political celibacy uh, that I took years ago. I'll confess to you that um, it has its pluses, especially in era as contentious as this one, you know, where folks get so riled up on both sides. It's awfully nice to be uh, neutered. Not too long after 2012, after I said I would come to this job, um, it was, I think it's fair to say, a disappointment to allies in the party, including candidate for governor uh, Mike Pence at the time that I said I'm not going to go give speeches or make commercials for anybody this fall. But uh, anyway, I got a call from a fellow governor who... Um, it was some, some kind of a shop talk call. I can't remember exactly, but how would you handle this issue? Or I got this problem. What, what would you do about it? We got done. He said, okay, great. Uh, thanks. He said, um, so I'll see you in Tampa next month at the convention. And I said, well, no. And I explained. And I uh, hope the audience won't object to the direct quote. There's a little pause, and he said, 
you clever bastard. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, there have been many times since when I've thought, this is uh, not a bad time to uh, be on the sidelines. You found the cleverest way out, didn't you? <laughs> well, uh, let me just say uh, it worked out uh, well for me and my family. Coming up next time on Freakonomics Radio. I'm Ann Wojcicki, and I am the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe. 23andMe is at the center of a personal genetics revolution. And it's revolutionary in more ways than you know. There's this. For somebody with a fatal illness, that can be maddening. Like, I just gave you my data. Like, do something. But there's also this. Let me tell you what it's like to find out you were wrong just plain wrong about who you are and where you come from. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Harry Huggins. Our staff also includes Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippin, Zach Lipinski, Matt Hickey, and Corinne Wallace. Our theme song is Mr. Fortune by The Hitchhikers. All the other music was composed by Luis Guerra. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The entire archive is available on the Stitcher app or at Freakonomics.com, where we also publish transcripts and show notes. If you want to hear our entire archive ad-free, plus lots of bonus episodes, go to stitcherpremium.com slash Freakonomics. We also publish every week on Medium, a short text version of our new episode. Go to medium.com slash Freakonomics Radio. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or via email at radio at Freakonomics.com. Freakonomics Radio also plays on many NPR stations. Please check your local station for details. As always, thank you for listening. Stitcher. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats to keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with Your Garage on Cars.com.